Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. As Carl Jung repeatedly declared, our goal is wholeness, not perfection. People living soul-centrically are not untroubled or unchallenged. They are not beyond experiencing times, confusion, mistakes, and tragedies. They have by no means healed all their wounds. They are simply on a path to wholeness, to becoming fully human. With all the inevitable defects and distresses inherent in any human story, and with all the promise held by our uniquely human imagination. That quote is from Bill Plotkin in his book, Nature and the Human Soul, Cultivating Wholeness and Community in a Fragmented World. Who are you? What do you believe to be true? What do you bring consciously to the world? And even more interesting, what do you bring unconsciously to your work, to your organization, to your relationships? How does that which you've either denied about yourself or feel uncomfortable about shape your life positively or negatively? What lies in this unseen shadow? And why is it important for you to explore? The work of today's guest shows up in just about everything we do at Reboot. From the way we engage our clients, to how we've shaped our peer groups, to the kinds of conversations we hold in these podcasts. His contributions have also greatly influenced the leadership work we do in our boot camps. So really are truly honored and thrilled to have one of our key teachers, Parker Palmer, join Jerry in a discussion on a very important and powerful topic, shadow and leadership. Just real quick before we start our episode, we wanted to remind you to check out our website at reboot.io slash podcast. We have tons of extra information on this discussion, including more on Parker, his books, as well as links to all the quotes, poems, books these two mentioned in the episode. That's reboot.io slash podcast. Now on with the episode. Hi, Parker. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be with you, Jerry, always. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, just seeing your face uh, and uh, it's a delight. I mean, as, as we've talked over the years and, and as our friendship has developed, you know that in addition to having this um, deep admiration for you on a personal basis, I also hold this uh, profound intellectual admiration for the work that you've done and consider you uh, uh, one of my teachers uh, in this regard. And, you know, one of the thoughts that I had about our conversation today would be that we work with this notion of shadow as it shows up in leadership. Uh, as you're familiar with, we, we do these uh, CEO and soon-to-be co-founder boot camps where we really try to look at the questions associated with leadership both from a pragmatic, practical perspective, because so often people are thrust into a leadership position without really any training of how to do the job, how to be CEO and not just do the tasks. But uh, also through the lens of what I often refer to as a kind of radical self-inquiry. Mm-hmm. Who am I? What do I believe to be true about the world? What do I bring consciously and relevant to this conversation, what do I bring perhaps even unconsciously 
if we can speak about that in that in that way, to this position. And even more specifically, how does that which I have either denied about myself or feel uncomfortable about myself end up shaping the organization positively and negatively right. um, within us? So I guess the first question I have is how would you define the shadow mm-hmm. in that regard? Well, uh, let me say, Jerry, that this teaching mentoring stuff is very mutual. So this is a kind of conversation that I always welcome with you because I, I learned so much from it and have over the years we've journeyed together. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you. So, you know, I, I, let me take it back a long ways, starters, to Socrates. Um, we often draw on contemporary or more modern wisdom traditions for this insight that we live life from the inside out, that what's going on inside us is as important as what we're doing on the outside. But, you know, way, way back, Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I'm now old enough to be able to amend Socrates. I think you have to wait until you get to a certain age to do that. And my amendment to Socrates is, if you choose to live an unexamined life, please do not take a job that involves other people. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're going to do tremendous damage Mm. if you don't really understand that very tricky inner terrain. Mm. And as you know from the piece that I wrote called Leading from Within, um, I sort of start out by saying that a leader could be defined as a person who has power um, to create conditions for a group of folks, those working with and or under the leader, um, conditions that are either as light-filled as heaven or as shadowy as hell, Mm. and that one of the leader's first responsibilities is to take that kind of inner journey, do that kind of Socratic self-examination, that allows one to to not get rid of the shadow because you'll never get rid of the shadow. Um, The interesting thing thing about a shadow is that the closer you get to the light, the longer the shadow becomes. And that's an image that has power for me because I've experienced that not only in the physical world, but in the psychological and spiritual world as well. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of it in religious organizations. Mm where leaders feel or people project upon leaders that they're standing very close to the, to the light, to the mm-hmm. source. And, and if, if those leaders absorb that sort of projection, their shadow becomes very long mm-hmm. and very dangerous. So the issue is not how do we get rid of these shadows, these, these unconscious elements of ourselves, these parts of ourselves that have power over us, but, but we don't recognize Uh, the parts, we don't know how to name them, which gives them even more power. The issue is not getting rid of them. The issue is becoming so self-aware about them that they no longer have the kind of power that they have when they operate unconsciously. Um, I think lots of people are familiar with that from therapeutic settings. So you go into a therapeutic setting with a problem that as far as you're concerned, is all about the other person uh, or those people. And a good therapist 
helps you understand, uh, you know, those people aren't here. The other person isn't here. We can't work with that. But we can work with whatever it is in you that's conspiring to create this problem. And that's often shadow stuff that you're not aware of. And I think, it, I think we can identify particular shadows in leaders that we've seen time and time again um, and remind ourselves as leaders that these are things in relation to which we need to maintain constant vigilance. Mm. Uh, things where we have to continually examine our lives to make sure that these particular shadows aren't creeping out and, um, and darkening the situation for others. You know, as, you, as you're describing that, um, through my own personal work and the work I do as a, as a coach, um, I'm very, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very comfortable with and familiar with that notion of bringing into consciousness that which, which we will often externalize. And in, in a sense, it often feels that, that not only have we denied the attributes of ourself, the traits of ourself, and put them in Robert Bly, what Robert Bly called the long black bag behind us, but that we uh, deny ourselves the opportunity of the process by which we could actually reach back into that bag and bring them forward. And I'm reminded of something that I read just recently, again, in, in, uh, in Sharon Salzberg's beautiful book, Loving Kindness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit to you th- th- this little story because I think you'll enjoy it. She writes, the Taoist philosopher Chang Tzu told this story. There was a man displeased by the sight of his own shadow and so displeased with his own footsteps that he determined to get rid of both. The method he hit upon was to run away from them. So he got up and ran. But every time he put his foot down, there was another step, while his shadow kept up with them without the slightest difficulty. He attributed his failure to the fact that he was not running fast enough. So he ran faster and faster, without stopping, until he finally dropped dead. He failed to realize that if he merely stepped into the shade his shadow would vanish. And if he sat down and stayed still, there would be no more footsteps. Beautiful. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. And instant analogy to so many real-life situations that we can both think about right now. Say more. Well, I've just seen so many leaders um, run faster and faster and faster as if that were the solution. Um, trying to escape that which can't be escaped, which is, of course, themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. we, we, as, as Ram Dass, I think it was, famously said, wherever you go, there you are. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 can't re- I can't count over the years the number of retreats I've gone on or the number of vacations that I've taken thinking, Getting away from all of this will fix everything, all the misery I'm feeling right now. I had simply forgotten that I, I take myself on, <laughs> or I take myself on vacation. So, you know, after the first dinner or the first night of good sleep, there's the misery again, right? Yes. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm there. I bring, it, I bring it with me. So it's a lot about 
It is exactly as the Shuang Tzu story says, and Sharon Salzberg's writing is very, very beautiful. She's a terrific teacher. She knows a lot. Um, so, as the Shuang Tzu story says, um, this we we have to take responsibility for ourselves, and the first step in taking responsibility for ourselves is to stand in the shade, to sit down. Those are all powerful images of what it means to begin a process of self-examination, to become familiar um, with, with what I call the inner terrain of our lives, and to realize that we have choices to make about where we stand in that terrain, but we won't begin to make those choices um, until we become acquainted with it. And running fast in the external world is really a way of evading self-examination. So busyness isn't going to do the job. And, and, and I understand how hard it is for some leaders to hear that because leadership is hard work and a lot of busyness is required just to keep up with the whitewater of whatever world the leader is in. But there have to be you know, I, I was, I went, I've been down the Grand Canyon three times on the rafting trip, the 10-day trip. And I was so fascinated to, to see on that first trip how a, a boatman would, would, on this rushing river with some of the most challenging whitewater rapids in the world, would find an eddy at the side of the stream that where there would actually be a backflow that would slowly take you upstream. Mm -hmm. So if you missed a beach where you wanted to land for lunch, you'd get into that backflowing side slip and the boat would back up mm -hmm. and you could rest. And that was a huge image for me about there's always a place in the whitewater to, to slow down, to back up, to take stock, um, and without denying that you have to get back in the river in some of these challenging leadership jobs. It, it, uh, it reminds me of that line from David Wagner's poem, Lost. When you're lost in the woods, stand still. Right, exactly, yeah. You don't keep walking. Yeah, and he, he has this, as I recollect the poem, I love that poem too, Jerry. As I recollect it, he says, this tree, this bush, they know where they are. <laughs> Trust right. that knowledge, you know. That's and right. Just, and be, be with it by, by standing still. Yeah. I think the challenge is for all of us, and I, and I think you, you say it so well in that essay, Leading from Within, which is in Let Your Life Speak. The challenge is that, as the Xuanzu story tells, standing still often means stepping into the shade. Right. And, you know, you're right, uh, to, to quote you to you, leaders need not only the technical skills to manage the external world, all of that busyness, they need the spiritual skills to journey inward toward the source of, and you write this, of both shadow and light. Right. And, right. and, and, and there is an, intu an intuitive response I think we as humans have, which is to shy away from that which is painful. Right, 
um, and to move towards that which we believe will give us relief. Yeah. And this work, this 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 work of living out the notion of the the examined life, often means confronting that which we don't want to see. That's why it's in the shadow. Absolutely, it's very hard work. It's it's very demanding work. The reward, however, is immense. I mean, we're all yearning for something called wholeness, right? I've never known a human being who didn't want to feel like and live as a whole person. Well, wholeness means the whole kielbasa, as we say in Wisconsin. <laughs> With or, a few oh. cheese curds on the side. <laughs> <laughs> right, cheese curds. You've been in our state. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but we won't go there because that's a harder topic than the shadow. It's <laughs> a more challenging topic. Um, so, so, you know, we... we what we have to understand is that we we will never achieve wholeness if we cannot ultimately say, I am not only my light, my strengths, my gifts, my virtues, my nobility. I am also my shadow. I am my failures. I am my fears. I am those potholes that I keep falling into. I am all of the above. Somebody once pointed out to me that when you go buy apple juice at the store, you get stuff in a glass bottle that you can see right through because it's pasteurized and processed and filtered. But if you get whole apple juice, it's got seeds and chunks of skin and stem, and it's, and it's murky. There's a sediment at the bottom. It's the most enriching kind. <laughs> it has all the vitamins and minerals in it. But... It is, doesn't have that crystalline purity that we associate with, you know, with the apple juice we want to buy. So human wholeness is the same way. You know, there's a lot of murk in us. Um, there's a lot of bits and pieces of stuff that we don't know what to do with. But to be whole means to be able to claim all of it as who we are. So, you know, in my own case, as you well know, um, one manifestation of my shadow has been three deep dives into severe clinical depression, where I lived on three different occasions for months at a time, often wondering if this was the day when I should end my life because the life I was living was not worth living. Of course, I'm eternally grateful that for whatever reason I was able to live another day uh, and, and reclaim my health. But reclaiming my health meant acknowledging not only to myself, but eventually to the people I work with, to my readers, to the folks who listen to my talks or attend my workshops, acknowledging that three times in my life I have fallen into this deep pit of depression, which in our society has often been a taboo subject because it represents some kind of weakness that, quote, strong, successful people, especially men, especially men, especially yes. men don't, don't have to experience because they're too strong and too smart and too successful for that. I, I think one of the best books written about depression among men has a brilliant title. It's called I Don't Want to Talk About It. Ah, Terrence Real. I Don't Want to Talk About It. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You know, this literature as well as I do and the experience. So. So 
you know, I finally found myself writing a line that went something like, wholeness does not mean perfection. Wholeness means acknowledging our wounds as well as our strengths, saying, I am all of the above. Leonard Cohen says it beautifully, you know, forget your perfect offering. Mm. Ring the bells that still can ring. Uh, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Mm. And, and that's an, a poetic way of saying what we're saying here, that, this, that the great reward of becoming honest first with yourself about your shadow as well as your light, and then with others is wholeness. And one of the wonderful things about, about the journey toward wholeness, which I don't think you know, anyone ever achieves perfectly with perfection, right. but there are certainly degrees of it that in my life at least I can feel. One of the, one of the ways to put the great re reward of being on that journey toward wholeness is that you come to feel more at home in your own skin. And for that reason, you are also you also come to feel more at home in the world. Because until you've owned your own shadow, you're always in the business of projecting it on other people or other situations. It's always his fault or her fault or their fault. Or if only I could, you know, have a better team to work with, or if only I could have a, a better board, or whatever it may be, you're, you're not, there may be problems in that area, but you're not making good judgments about them when you haven't come to terms with that shadow, those shadow parts of yourself, which are so easily projected on others when you haven't owned them for yourself. I, I, I think you're, you're so correct. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen my my journey with my depression as moving away from chasing happiness and towards chasing wholeness mm -hmm. and having a byproduct of being generally more happy as right. a result. Absolutely. It's a great way to put it. It's yeah. a great way to put it. You laugh more. You enjoy it. You, you do. And when people say to me, you're so courageous <laughs> to talk about your depression publicly, I say, you know, courage has nothing to do with it. This is a form of therapy for me in the sense that it's part of my journey toward becoming whole, more whole every day, that unending journey. Yeah, well, for me, your expressions of it, as we've shared in the past, have also been a personification of that very core spiritual notion that we are connected. And because by you therapeutically helping yourself by being open and real, you, unbeknownst to you, because we didn't know each other at the time when I first read Let Your Life Speak, you helped me. And it's, it's, it, to me, that's a, that's a profound expression of the interconnectedness of us. Yes, because that's... me doing my work allows the other to do their work. Yeah, yeah, As, exactly. As long as I can manage my own ego tendency of not projecting my work onto the other and turning them into an object. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we also come back to that mutuality because your story, as connected with mine, strengthens me. Yes. You know, so ultimately this is, this is a work not just for me, but for us. Yes, uh, yes. And it's, it's amazing 
to get to that point where where you're you're secure enough in your own mix of shadow and light that sharing it just becomes the most natural act in the world you know so this is me you, what you see is what you get and and I there's nothing about it that I'm not willing to share I, you know a, a couple things Jerry I I've, I've always said I've had a lot of people come to talk to me about their depression because I've written and spoken about it. And I always wait for that moment uh, in an extended conversation when I can honestly say to them after they've gotten it out, you know, after they've said everything that they regard as shameful and as every, they've said everything that they've never said to another human being or thought they could say. I always treasure that moment when I can look at them and smile and say, welcome to the human race. Mm -hmm. You did not just marginalize yourself. You just joined us. That's you, right. joined, you joined us in the human condition. And it's all about, it's all about joining us, really, to become more fully human. Um, was it Walt Whitman who said, you know, I am inwardly, I am legions, you know, I... I recognize every condition of man and woman because I have every condition of man and woman. Mm -hmm. And that's a great place to be in life where you can feel that connectedness. And just, just one other thing about this sort of existential foundation of all of this, which I think takes us so far beyond, you know, therapeutic technique, which is valuable. But the existential payoff is something maybe we don't talk about enough. So, as you know, I recently turned 76 years of age, and at that age, you start thinking uh, more consciously about your own death than you did when you were 30, 40, 50, whatever. Um, the 70s are a time of awareness about mortality, if you're lucky enough to make it that long. Um, and, and one of the thoughts that keeps coming back to me is, I can't imagine a sadder way to die than with the feeling that I never showed up in this world as my true self. <laughs> you know, that I was always a masked wonder, yeah. trying to convince other people that I was something that I'm not. Um, Thomas Merton, one of my heroes uh, in the spiritual life, once said, we all live lives, or not all of us, most of us, he said, live lives of self-impersonation. <laughs> I think that's such a brilliant phrase. And, and yet, as you approach the end of life, you, you realize what, what, what sadness is attached to self-impersonation, to, to not showing up as who you really are with all that you've really got. Um, I, I do a lot of work with teachers, and I, I, I won't give you the long version of this story, but I once sat at a lunch table with five male faculty members during a faculty workshop I was giving. And <clears throat> somehow the conversation turned to the courses that all of us had failed in college <laughs> because we went to college driven by a parental agenda, a family agenda, a cultural agenda, that we were supposed to become this or that, which turned out to be something that wasn't us, right? Yeah. So you're a sophomore, 
your folks have said you got to become a doctor and you're getting a D minus in organic chemistry, right? Everybody at the table had a story of that sort to tell. And the second half of that story was how that failure turned them toward, let's say, 19th century British literature, which is now the specialty they love and are teaching with great joy, have been doing for 15 years. In other words, the failure, the closing of one door, opened a door into their true life, their true vocation. So I heard, I listened to those stories, and I had my own, listened with appreciation. But before we got up from the table, I said, let me just ask all of you, you guys one question. How many of you have ever told your story about failure to your students? And not a single hand went up. So the leaders in this society are withholding critical stuff. I said to them, please, for God's sake, tell those stories, because you've got students sitting in your classes right now who are dying inside about a failure that they think is a dead end rather than an opening to a new path. Rather than a crack that lets the light in. That lets the light in, exactly. Yeah. That's right. I, I I could not agree with you more. I I I I see it every day in the work. You know, uh, this is at the heart of the notion of authentic leadership. Really being yourself, the whole, bringing forth that sh- those shadow qualities, and it starts to transform the relationship for those all around you. Um, there's another benefit uh, that I believe exists with this, and. I'm remembering, I think it's the Jungian analyst, James Hollis, who wrote about our shadow qualities being a 10,000 volt power line Mm. that's Mm. available to us. Mm. If we pick it up and plug it in properly, it's extraordinary. And if we approach it inappropriately, it can hurt us. Yes. And... You know, I was sharing that view uh, this past weekend with the last boot camp that we did. And uh, one of the campers, I won't reveal too much about their person, their, their, their identification, but shared a story. Um, first time CEO has built a company who, in a sense, their business is feeding people. Mm-hmm. It's a catering service. Mm-hmm. And as we explored her shadow qualities of humiliation, Mm. isolation. She was struck by a memory of being a kid, not allowed to eat lunch Mm. with all the other cool kids. Mm. Mm. And, and And being so struck by the feeling of isolation of having to eat by herself. Yeah. And when she made the connection that what she had done was built a company designed to feed people in community. Yeah, yeah. That what she accessed then, and you could see her, the body changed. She all of a sudden owned the painful memory that was providing a source of creativity and beautiful expression. Yeah, that's alchemy. That's That's alchemy. Gross into gold, right? Dirt into gold. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it connects so powerfully with another phrase that that uh, is relevant to what we're talking about, and that's the wounded healer. 
you know. So what do we do with our wounds? Do we cover them up? Do we ignore them? Do we pretend they never happened? No, they can they can have this transformative power of turning us into healers of a wounded world. And what better mission could any of us undertake, whether you're catering or or entering the political realm or anything in between, than to be a wounded healer. What what would our world be like if leaders stepped into their role as healer? Right, right. And and this it would be one a wonderful world. It? it would just be an absolutely wonderful world. I want to go live there. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Right. Is there a house on the market? <laughs> so this this takes us, I don't know whether you want to go into these waters, but yeah. as you and I both know, and I know this there's a lot of of your work that involves this, there, we, we must have empathy for leaders who live and move in a world where people want shows of strength. At least they think that's what they want. They don't want exposures of weakness. I mean, we've seen what happens in American political life if a female or a male candidate cries in public over something, right? They're right. dead in the water. They're finished. Right. We saw what happened when Thomas Eagleton was the vice presidential candidate on George McGovern's ticket, and it came out that he'd had psychiatric treatment for depression. They kicked him off the ticket and replaced him. Right. Um, so, you know, we, this is a tough world in, in which to be whole. But what happened... And, and, what happens, as, as, as is true of so many of the, these kinds of journeys, is that you begin not from a place of saying, um, this is going to transform my company or make my path easier. It's actually going to be, make your path harder for a while, and it's actually going to meet with resistance and blowback, except in rare situations. So you start from a point of saying, I'm doing this because I care about my own well-being. I care about my own wholeness. I care about my identity and integrity. I care about, about not being one of those people who will die saying, I was here for 75 years and I never showed up as my true self. I can't imagine a sadder way to die. You start there, that's the firm foundation of claiming selfhood. In, in all of its ramifications. And then you work through the tough stuff that comes when, you, when that blowback uh, sets in. Because, because part of the deal is that the followers, if I can use that word, I actually think we're all leaders one way or another, but in this case, let's, let's imagine followers of a corporate leader. Because followers, it's going to take some time for them to trust this. So, what is, what is what's happening here? They're going to say, "I've never had a boss behave like this." Right. And you're going to have to exercise patience. The patience that comes from seeing that they suffer from the same condition that you are now in the process of liberating yourself from. Right. 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 And and I do think that this insight on the part of leaders is very very important. That, as you know, I've never been the leader of a corporation or a major organization. That's not my gift. 
But one form of leadership I am acquainted with is classroom teaching at the graduate and undergraduate level. And I know that when my teaching started shifting from the top-down lecture that takes up the whole hour um, to a much more dialogical form, which gets students engaged, um, like some people now call it the flipped classroom, yeah. um, you do all the study outside and then you come to work on problems together. When, when, when my teaching started shifting in that direction, my students were very resistant they, they, they looked at me and said, come on, man, you're the guy with the PhD. You're the guy who knows what we need to know. Just give us the knowledge, test us on it, give us a grade, and let us get the hell out of here. Right, because and, in part, I think they wanted their fear addressed, which was, how am I going to get that A? That's right. That's exactly right. They, and, right. and their fear of an engaged form of learning in which they're going to say something wrong, Right. right. They aren't going to have the answer to a question whose answers aren't at the back of the book because that's real learning and that's risk, risky stuff. So I had to, I, instead of being resentful towards them and, and with that resentment then flipping back into my know-it-all lecturer role, I had to have the insight into their condition to see what was going on. That what was going on, just as you said, was fear and, and not um, they're, they're, they're brain dead, they're, they're lazy, they're this, they're that, but they're afraid. And I had to work hard to create the conditions that would help them move past their fear. And when I was able to put all of that together, to hold my ground as a dialogical teacher and to create conditions that took them past their fear, then the learning just exploded, you know. Then people came to class excited with new insights. They learned to work collectively rather than competitively. Mm. Um, they asked questions that weren't in the book and gave answers that aren't at the back of any book, which is exactly what's needed in the workplace of the 21st century. I, I I think you're you're absolutely right, and I'm reminded of of what of one of the things that you've defined as a shadow casting demon, which is this notion of functional atheism. Yeah, and and you know a common common complaint that I hear from my clients, they'll come into my office, they'll sit on their couch, they often break down in tears because this is the first place that they can really be heard. And one of the first things that come out is the burden that they feel of mm -hmm. having to have all the answers. Right, right. And, and it takes a while for them to understand that there's actually uh, two forces at work there right. that create that condition. One force is their own sense of inadequacy, which causes them to see themselves as the source, the fountain of all knowledge. Right. And the other is the almost... In, uh, wish to be infantilized part on the part of the staff. Right. Just tell me what the answer is so that I can get the A. Exactly, exactly. And the A may mean a bonus or a raise. Exactly. Or or not be fired. Yeah, right. Just right. not be fired. Exactly. Right. right. So, so just take a minute to unpack that shadow and relate it to another one that, as you know, I've named. So the functional, the shadow that I call functional atheism was 
was a, 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 one way of talking about the, this idea that if anything good is going to happen here in this situation, my company, my classroom, I'm the person who has to make it happen. There are no other forces at work here. Right. So in a religious context, you know, you talk a good line about God moving among us or whatever the language is, but it ain't real. Um, I'm the priest, I'm the pastor. If anything godly is going to happen here, i got to make it happen, right? Right. So that has its equivalence in all kinds of secular situations. That's, that's the, 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 the big ego leader syndrome, in a way. It's like nobody else, I mean, I'm the leader because I know so much more than anyone else here. And I've, I've got to deliver if anything good is going to happen, which, of course, shuts other people down cuts you off from an endlessly rich supply of synergistic thinking and possibility um, because you're, you've fallen into this, this pit that I call functional atheism, or, which is really an ego pit. So I'll relate that to another shadow I named, which was um, insecurity about identity and worth. You know, I remember... Vividly, I mean, that just saying those words brings up a gut feeling in me about my early efforts to shift my mode of teaching mm. from the top-down lecturing to this dialogical style, meeting massive student resistance in the process. I'm a pretty good lecturer, you know. I, it's not uncommon for me to get standing ovations from audiences of five, six, seven, eight hundred. I've learned how to do that, and I've learned how to hold a classroom and even sometimes wow a classroom. So when I, so that's ego satisfying, and that speaks to my my issues around identity and worth. Who am I? Well, I'm a great lecturer, and am I or worth? I, I'm worthwhile because 800 people are standing up and applauding me. Exactly. I, am I worth anything? Yeah. Well, it, there, there's the evidence, right? So. I'd start changing my mode of, of teaching, and what I get is I ask a question, and five minutes of silence pass before, before anyone sort of timidly sticks up a hand and offers a half-baked answer. Um, what's happening there is not only am I getting, I mean, what's happening on the surface is I'm getting very angry at my students mm -hmm. for their failure to participate. In this, in this new game. But what's really happening is I'm, I'm just profoundly wounded about who am I and what am I worth. And nothing is happening here. And if I haven't got a workaround for that, if I haven't got a way of holding that that, that, says, that says basically, Parker, you, you can lecture till you're blue in the face. That doesn't mean any learning is going on. You are here to serve the cause of learning among these particular students. So your worth is attached to your willingness to stand the gaff mm. while you bring them from high school mm. into the world of genuinely engaged learning, mm. which is no longer by rote. It's no longer how much can you memorize. It's how well can you think like a sociologist or like a literary scholar or like a physicist around a problem 
that you've never seen before, but that we're going to do together in, in community. You know, I've often thought, Jerry, that um, we, we talk a lot about the skills necessary to lead a hierarchical organization. But there's a sense in which um, that's like falling off a log compared to leading the complex orchestration of a communal effort mm -hmm. to synergistically name, solve problems, and implement the solutions, drawing on everybody's best ideas, everybody's wisdom, everybody's gifts, which differ greatly from one another. Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. The, you know, another uh, shadow casting demon you, you name is this, this fear of failure and or the denial of death. And, 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 and so it sets us up into this structured position around it. And, and the irony is to bring this into, say, businesses and startups in particular, most startups fail. And I don't mean most by 51%. I mean 90% yeah. fail. So the potential for failure is always there. It's, it, it, it underlies everything. And if I think of, of some of the most common uh, uh, challenges, one of the most common challenges is that the ability to access the wholeness, not only of yourself, but of the entire organization that you have built, is only available when we take ourselves out of that, that top of the pyramid hierarchical structure and we put ourselves into a position as leaders where we can ask questions instead of lecture. Mm -hmm. Because then it's challenging and it's scary, but then we allow the people that we have hired as colleagues and peers mm -hmm. to access their creativity, right. their Easy. spontaneity, their innovation. Exactly. Yeah. Which yeah. is the best guard against failure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It, we have to just flip our logic on that. And, and of course, the starting point of that is to say, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Or, or to put it a little bit differently, all of us together are inevitably, invariably smarter than any one of us alone. Yeah, I, I, I think that's beautifully said. You know, another another camper, this just came to mind, another camper once said, this was at one of the last year's camps, he said, in this beautiful moment, in the afternoon in which we were really deeply discussing shadow, and I and I and I and I really asked people to look at the purpose of their organization, not the meaning, not the mission statement of the organization, but the purpose. And he turned around and he said, the purpose of my company is for every staff member to self-actualize to their fullest self. Beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful, beautiful. Because he knows all of the consequences of that happening, which loop right back into the business. And That's right. Not only does it feed the business and the potential of the business to be nimble, to grow, but it also feeds back into that self, the way we were talking about before. Because in a sense, by allowing that person to self-actualize, he then gets to self-actualize. Absolutely. Yeah. By allowing himself to heal, he allows them to heal. Yeah, absolutely. When we liberate ourselves, we liberate others. And 
you know, and that's a great welcome to the human race moment. I mean, that. well, it, it, it to me it, it it turns the workplace not into a dreadful obligation, right? But into a place of community. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, community and service. Community um, and service. And people go home at the end of the day just profoundly satisfied that they have not only conceived and created and produced and marketed a product, but they have grown as human beings and helped other people grow. And, and ultimately, there is no deeper satisfaction than that. I, th I think what you're ultimately getting at is that when the leader works with their own shadow, right? when they bring conscious that which has been thrown into the unconscious right. and denied and right. creates the conditions by which we all can do that, Right. then this beautiful byproduct starts to occur called trust. Absolutely. And then trust becomes the foundation for success right. at the organizational level. Really, I think, regardless of the endeavor. I agree completely. Trust is the engine of good work and, and the improvement of good work. And it takes only a moment to realize that if you and I aren't doing certain basic forms of inner work on shadow stuff, we will never achieve relational trust. You and I, we both have walked paths in the world doing work that has required strong egos, right? Mm -hmm. it, there is something called ego strength that has virtue to it. Mm -hmm. But it's easy for that ego strength to slip over into egotism mm. and, and even narcissism. So if we're not doing the inner work to hold our egos in check, we're not going to achieve relational trust and none of these other benefits will flow from it. If, if we're unable to forgive ourselves or the other for the inevitable slip-ups and screw-ups and misunderstandings that come with being human, we're not going to be able to achieve relational trust and realize all the benefits that accrue to it. So just two examples, ego and forgiveness, of pieces of inner work that are so obviously necessary to achieve relational trust, which is so obviously necessary to achieve great results in any line of work, it kind of makes you scratch your head and wonder why we haven't been on to this mm. more thoroughly uh, before. Mm. Uh, all, well, all I, I, I think there's, a, there, there's, there's an irony in that so much of the underlying energy behind building and maintaining shadow is a fear. Mm. Uh, that fear of death, the fear of failure, the fear of being misbegotten, unloved, bereft. Without identity. Without identity, annihilated, never to have mattered at all in the world. So much of that energy is placed into denying what's going on. When the antidote to the very conditions that we seek to run away from is trust, right. is community. Right. Regardless of whether or not the current endeavor succeeds, mm -hmm. whatever that means, 
the experience of the endeavor can be successful whether or not you achieve the financial goals you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah. Right. And then if the financial goals fail, but the trust building and self-actualization goals succeed, then you get to do, and I'll give you this word that we use in the tech industry all the time, you get to do a wonderful little pivot. (laughs) You get to turn, and you get to take everything that you experienced before and you put it under a new frame called experiment that did mm. not turn out the way you wanted. Right. And right. you get to take that knowledge and try again. You do 2.0. Huh? You do 2.0. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's right. That's 2.0. right. I mean, in a, in a sense, the name of our company is Reboot. Yeah. Reboot means starting again. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I love it. And, you know, what interests me, and I know it interests you, too, is that one of the great idols in this society is science. We, why don't we learn from it? Because in, in the world of science, a failure is not a failure. No. The failure of a hypothesis is actually some, an experience from which you learn more than when a hypothesis succeeds. Yeah. Be- because a failed hypothesis decidedly rules out one set of variables if the experiment has been properly constructed, right? That's right. A a successful hypothesis, a successful experiment says, well, maybe that's the whole story, but maybe there are variables that we haven't considered that are also playing into this success, right? Yeah. That's, That's 101. That's science 101. Yeah. And and it's ama- it's always been amazing to me that in a that in a world which says, Oh, science has the answers, you know, let us turn in that direction and listen to what they have to say. We don't listen to what they have to say. Not not when it comes to relating to our own sense of failure. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's uh, you know, I'll I'll make this last point and then let us wrap. The the you know, I often speak around the world to young startups and and on. And remember, a few maybe a year or so ago, I was in Croatia for the first time, and I was talking about the fear of failure. And they 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 shared with me that there's basically two words in Croatian for failure. One relates to an experiment gone wrong, and the other relates to being a loser. Oh, interesting. And so they make that distinction. Yeah, and and so the question is, which one do you want to label your failure? Right. Right? Right. You know, do you want to be the loser? Right. Which is really about the ego attachment to the accomplishment. Right. Right? Which fuels that shadow? Or do do you give yourself the opportunity to really grow from that experience? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think just as we wrap it up to say that one of the great opportunities of a leader who understands this shadow stuff because he or she has been doing it inwardly and can now share it outwardly is that they have the power to reframe things like failure for everyone with whom they work. Leadership is so much about reframing. And if you take this this one alone, the leader needs to say, Here's how we normally frame failure in this society. But in this company, in this community, we're going to challenge that, and we're going to have another frame around failure. Now, a a failure from which you can learn, a failure which 
paradoxically is not a failure, <laughs> is one that's carefully constructed, right? Yes. In science, if the hypothesis isn't carefully constructed and the experiment likewise, then you're never sure what, what you've learned. But we're going we're gonna to create carefully constructed hypotheses and experiments, and when those fail, we can all cheer and say, look how much we've learned. We're not, which means we're not going to do sloppy work. I mean, it, this isn't just sort of anything goes. Um, you know, there are some some boundary conditions to the failure, which is actually paradoxically a success. And a good leader can can frame that, can bring people into a whole new set of standards, which are actually very liberating of our fear of failure, and at the same time advance the work and advance the sense of community. Which ultimately, you know, to go back to that client who said, you know, the purpose of this company is to the fulfillment of the humanity of everybody who's involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So you go back home and you take that reframing with you and your child comes home from school and says, I failed a test. Mm -hmm. Well, Good for you. There's a learning in here. Let's look for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much. What you know? It's it, we could talk forever. We could riff forever. We could. You know, it's such a joy. And every conversation I have with you, I come away with just a deeper understanding of some of these issues. And so I am deeply grateful to you. Um, not only for the work that you've helped me do, but the work that you help me do every day with my clients and the work that they then do turn around and do with their colleagues, their peers, their friends, their family. Well, thank you. That's, that's very generous. And I'll go back to where I started and say it's also very mutual, oh, uh, very, very mutual. I, I so, I'm so grateful for this friendship and this learning community mm -hmm. of Two plus two plus two yeah. <laughs> supplied by many factors that we're all we're both part of. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Take care, Jerry. Take care. So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode, from links to books to quotes to images. So we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io/podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together.